His Italian mother named him after Mark, the gospel writer, in hopes that he would tell the gospel truth. When Mark, or Marco, in Italian, was only 17 years of age, he began an epic journey with his merchant uncle and father that would take about 25 years. And in the mid-13th century, the men would eventually travel through nations and countries like Russia, Afghanistan, Persia, over the Himalayas, eventually becoming the first Europeans to enter the vast empire of China, ruled by the Kublai Khan, his palace in what is now modern-day Beijing. He became the, the favorite of the court of the Kublai Khan and the most powerful ruler in the largest kingdom on planet Earth. In fact, for many years, the emperor refused to let him go back home. Intrigued by him, kept him as a representative of the court, which effectively allowed him to explore that vast empire. He would later write of the cities that he saw, which made European cities look like roadside villages, buildings with architecture that made cathedrals look tiny, the emperor's own palace in modern-day Beijing dwarfing the castles of Europe. In fact, the emperor's palace banquet room he claimed was large enough to seat 6,000 dinner guests at one time, each person eating from utensils of pure gold. Marco saw the world's first paper money. He saw the use of an elaborate postal system with first and second and third class mail divisions. He would write about the explosive power of this thing we now call gunpowder. It would be 400 years before Europe would catch up to producing as much steel as China was manufacturing in the year 1267. After serving the emperor for two decades, Marco was allowed to return home. And all his belongings were loaded onto about 18 ships with about 600 people in tow. And he never recorded all the details as to why he arrived with only one ship remaining and 18 survivors, he among them. But we do know that his journey took him nearly two years to complete. And he sailed into Venice with that one ship loaded with gold and silk and spices, including the recipe of his favorite Chinese culinary invention, pasta. The Italians got all the credit for that one, but he found that in China. And many people refused to believe his fantastic tales of wealth and commerce and architecture, culture. Many 13th century Europeans thought that he was just making it all up to sell his book, which he wrote. At the age of 70, Marco Polo was on his deathbed. Legend has it that members of his family were so concerned with the way he had lied, they brought in the village priest to hear his confessions. He refused to confess anything. In fact, we do know that as he died, after whispering his final words, he went on out of this life, and his famous final words were, in English, I have not told you half of all I saw, for I knew I would not be believed. 1,300 years before Marco Polo described his explorations throughout China, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the name of John wrote of this amazing tour he was given of heaven 
the events recorded in what we call the book of Revelation. John describes sights and sounds that still to this day boggle our imagination. In fact, we can't even conceive of them. They defy our thinking. Before this exploration tour took place, John had already sent three brief letters to the believing church about the inheritance of the believer. It was still captivating, even at that time, the mind of John about the glory which was to come. The glory of Christ that he felt should energize and incentivize the actions and the attitudes of every believer as we anticipate the glory of that coming kingdom and empire. He doesn't want us to overlook anything. Go back to 1 John in chapter 3 and verse 1 and and let's pick up where we left off in our last study together. And, and, and notice how he's just enraptured as we work our way through a few verses today with these thoughts. Verse 1, we can begin there as we start off and running. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God and such we are. In other words, don't forget who you are. You've been chosen by the Father and born through the application of divine life. You've been adopted into the family of God by the fulfillment of divine law. And you've been betrothed to God the Son through the covenant of divine love. You are now royalty. And you can translate the opening phrase in verse 1. Look at this. Would you look at this? We are children of God. We are royalty. Would you look at that? I watched with some fascination this past week as the second son of the Prince of Wales came to visit America for a seven-day visit. Pictures just kept showing up on my iPhone and my AP News app. So I finally dug into one of the articles to find out the reason for, for, for the fuss. And he was being photographed with Senate leaders. Everybody kind of wanted to get a picture next to him. He, he visited with the, the president's wife, attended special events. And as I read it, it, it occurred to me that there really wasn't anything official in his visit. It wasn't because he had a message from his grandmother, the Queen of England, not because he had anything to offer our situation as you know, former colonies of Great Britain, which had never gotten over. It, it really came down to the fact that He was a member of the royal family, and he was treated, rightly so, with royal respect as a guest of honor. Not because he had some official something to say, but simply because of the family to which he belonged. And people lined up everywhere to get a picture. Everybody wanted to see what a prince looked like. John adds... This idea at the end of verse 1, after declaring who we are, royalty, he says, the world does not know us. That is, they don't recognize who we are and appreciate what, what we are. Just as, he writes, the world did not know him, Christ. Nobody's lining up to take your picture, are they? They have no idea who you are. In other words, they have no idea that when they walk by you, You were a member of the divine royal family with a future reign that you will engage in. They had no clue when they brushed past you and maybe they didn't even return your greeting that they were snubbing a future, shining, immortal prince or princess 
of royal pedigree who will one day sit upon a throne as co-regent with the eternal creator God the Son. They don't know who you are. And so they're not going to line up to take your picture. John's not so worried about the world, by the way, overlooking who you are, we are. He's concerned that we are overlooking it. That's what he's concerned about. So what John will do in these next two verses, which is a little how, about how far we'll get, is effectively deliver two convictions and three reactions. Two convictions and three reactions. The first conviction is a conviction then about who we are. If you look at verse 2, he basically repeats what he's just said. But he adds a little emphasis. Beloved, now we are children of God. And he throws in that little word now translated here. It's as if John says, I've already told you this truth before, but I want to say it again. You are a child of God. Don't forget what family to whom you belong. You are related to God. And notice, you're related to him now. You are royalty now. Don't wait for your robe and crown to act like you are. Don't wait for your assignment of the coming kingdom to revel in the glory of God given to us whereby we are called his children, which we are. Don't wait for the kingdom to recognize your status even now because that kingdom is going to be here before you know it. John briefly described in Revelation chapters 19 and 20 this kingdom and then the eternal state afterward. And you would have to admit, if you studied with us for that three-year period, the book of Revelation, you'd have to admit you get to the end of it and we were not told half what John saw in this coming kingdom and that magnificent, glorious, global empire with Jesus on the throne. But the apostle John wants us to develop this inner conviction that translates into an outer attitude and bearing. Don't forget your royalty. Your royalty. Whether the world recognizes it or not. We are right now children of God. This is the amazing conviction then of, of who we are. And that's just the beginning. The second conviction is all about who we will become. John sort of presents this now and not yet concept. Notice, beloved, now we are children of God. And it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. By the way, if you have your little pencil or pen out, you might just underline the certainties of John. We know that when, not if, he appears, we will be like him. We will see. We know this. That's why John is called the, the apostle of certainty. We know these things by the spirit within us according to the truth of God's revelation. John uses a verb translated here, we know, for perceptive knowledge to the point of conviction. That knowledge produces backbone, so to speak. It produces the very fiber of our soul. It gives us assurance. He also uses an interesting word here for we will see him, seeing him. It's a rare form of a verb that refers not only to seeing him with our eyes, with perception, 
and recognition. He's not just talking about some physiological experience. Oh, I'm going to see him. He's actually using the form of a, of a verb that refers not just to recognition, but, and I love this implication, appreciation. And I'm so glad for that. In other words, built into the coming glory of Christ by the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit of God within us, we will immediately not just see him, but we will appreciate him to a depth we've never attained in life and we wished we had, right? We're going to immediately at that moment magnify and exalt and appreciate and glory in, in, in the worship of the one true and living deity embodying son of God. We're going to know it's him when he appears. And again, this is a reference, a subtle reference, not to his advent, but his appearing in the clouds, a reference to those who are alive when Jesus comes for his beloved. In other words, we're going to be raptured and immediately glorified if we're alive at that point in time. And when we see him, we're going to be like him. Notice, we will be like him. Here's the long-awaited end to our sanctification. This is where we will have that completion and our transformation into the likeness of Christ at that face-to-face encounter. We'll still learn. We're certainly going to grow in our knowledge But we will not grow from unholiness to holiness. We will grow from holiness to holiness. We will be like him. This doesn't mean we're going to become little gods. Heresy is always abounding on that little thing. That little untruth. Omnipresent, omniscient, omnipotent. No, those are not attributes communicated to mankind ever. They belong to God alone. But it does mean that our glorified bodies will be immortalized, perfected, like Christ, having nothing corrupt, no longer corrupted by sin, never corrupting through acts of sin. This was the longing, by the way, of the Apostle Paul. When you read his personal testimony in Romans chapter 7, who, he asks, he longs, he groans, who will deliver me from this body of death, this sinful Flesh. Well, John writes here, this is when it's going to happen. When he appears, we will be instantaneously, immediately like him. We're no longer going to be bound to decaying, depraved, sinful flesh. No more sin clouding our minds and thoughts. No more self-centeredness distorting our motives. No more pride binding our spirit and heart. No more lust and covetousness diverting away our worship. No more discontent and greed muting our praise and our thanksgiving for where we are and what God is doing and what God has done. If we are alive when he appears to rapture the church and if not, moments after we die and we're ushered into his presence, John informs us that when we see him, we will not only recognize him but our love and appreciation for him will be what it should be and what we longed for it to be and what we grieved when it wasn't and what we groaned for it to become what is John convinced of there is a lot more coming we don't know the half of it 
and we can't even fully describe what we're told. From the brief descriptions we've been given in the New Testament, we've been told that every believer will one day have a resurrected, recognizable, perfected body. First Corinthians 15. We're going to retain the uniqueness of our personalities. We're not going to sort of be one big blob chanting some undiscernible whatever before the throne forever. We're going to be uniquely who we are, only perfected. You're not going to become like me, which is good news for you, and I'm not going to become like you. In other words, if you didn't play the piano on earth, you're not going to play it in heaven. Somehow, just immediately going to know how to play the piano. If you didn't know how to play the harp down here, you're going to be playing it up there by the gate, whoever that poor soul is at the gate. I guess he lives there forever, but you're not going to do that either. We can also observe that in heaven, we retain memories on earth. We retain memories on earth. Of life on earth, you're going to recognize your spouses, your, your children, your extended family, those that you disciple together with, those that you studied with, those that you worshiped with. And you think, well, how could we with memories ever enjoy heaven? Our memories will be perfected by godly wisdom and holy justice and the perspective of our sovereign, eternal Lord whom we will talk with face to face. We know that our bodies are going to enjoy food, which you're going to be able to enjoy in about an hour and a half, just as Jesus ate fish. (laughs) You're a little slow, but... Remember he ate fish? And I love it. I love Luke chapter 24. They gave him fish and then he watched them. You know, were you going to see it go down? No. Body. He ate. We're also informed that God will have designed the tree of life to bear different fruit along the river of life. Probably, probably these trees are orchards. Bearing fruit, Revelation 22 says, every 30 days, which then has to restructure our rather shallow thinking of heaven. There are months Every 30 days, there are years, there's the passing of time, notwithstanding so many gospel songs that we sing. Even that little clue of our future home, by the way, again, it just kind of fries our imagination, doesn't it? Wait, what what, did he say? But even that idea of fruit, different fruit every month. New Testament scholars can't quite figure out what John is describing because of the language he uses. They're not exactly sure if it's, if it's the same fruit every month, a fresh crop, or if it's different fruit on the same tree every month, like some kind of glorified Harry and David system. You get a different <laughs> fruit every month. From other passages, we know we're going to communicate and learn. We're going to worship. We're going to serve, travel, explore. Much of what we know about heaven is what, what isn't going to be there. Whenever we get sick, weak, we're never going to, again, weep in sorrow. I believe we will weep in joy. That's a, a wonderful emotion. Never in sorrow. Never in guilt. Never hang our heads again in shame. Never again anguish over sin. Never again wish. I, I would love to talk to the Lord about that one personally. And hear his answer. Frankly, the Bible doesn't really tell us even half of the glory of our eternal state when we are in the presence of Jesus Christ. But I love the way John puts it here in the text. Look there. It doesn't yet appear what we will be. <laughs> I love that. Doesn't yet appear. 
Well, we have a little clues, but oh, listen. No, it doesn't yet appear, but we will be. Don't let appearances fool you. You see, you might think you're sitting next to just anybody. You're not. You're sitting next to an immortal, a prince, a princess, who will one day be kings and queens, reigning with Christ. Don't, don't let appearances fool you. There will be similarities, but there will be remarkable differences in who we will be. One author whose books I enjoy out of print, and he's along with the Lord a generation or so ago, wrote it this way when he commented on this text. From looking at an acorn, would you ever imagine the existence of a great oak tree? Doesn't yet appear what it will be. From looking at a scrawny, awkward, fuzzy eaglet, could you imagine that one day it will soar with tireless wings upon the air, that it will defy the hurricane and scream at the clouds? No, it doth not yet appear what it shall be. From looking at a crawling, earthbound caterpillar, can you prophesy that someday it will lift itself from the dust upon wings of beauty, multicolored, and make its home among the flowers? No, it doth not yet appear what it shall be. That's good. This is the conviction of the Apostle John. You and I are only shadows, we're only whispers of what we will become. The Apostle Paul, in fact, simply describes it (laughs) as uh, going from earthy, I love that word translated literally, we're earthy, we're going to be heavenly. Our mortality will be exchanged for immortality. You have to fill in the blanks with an imagination that can't really go that far. We haven't seen anything yet. I love the way one theologian wrote a parable from this text, commenting on it, having, imagining a conversation between twins in a mother's womb, a boy and a girl. They're having a conversation, and the sister says to her brother, I believe... There is life after birth. Her brother protested, no, 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 this is all there is. It's a dark and cozy place. We have nothing else to do but cling to the cord that feeds us. The little girl insisted, oh, there's got to be something more than this dark place. There must be something else, a place with light where there is freedom to move. She could not convince her twin brother. After some silence, the sister said, I I have something else to say, but I'm afraid you won't believe that either. I think there is a mother A mother, her brother shouted. What are you talking about? I've never seen a mother of you. You haven't. Who put that idea into your head? This place is all we have. Why why do you always want more? This is not such a bad place after all. The little girl said, but don't you feel those squeezes every once in a while? They're quite unpleasant and sometimes even painful. I thought this would be a great story for Mother's Day, of course. (laughs) Yes, he answered, but... What about them, these squeezes? Well, the sister said, I think these squeezes are getting us ready for some other place, much more beautiful than this, where I, for one, believe we will see our mother face to face. Two convictions. 
The first is a conviction about who we are. The second is about who we will become. And frankly, each of these convictions rests upon the flimsiest of imaginations, conceptions, and understandings. But this is what excited the Apostle John. Because, he says, now out of these convictions will come three reactions. In other words, if we truly believe that we are the children of divine royalty, if we truly believe there's more out there, a coming kingdom, the appearance of Christ, then we ought to be pursuing three ongoing reactions, so to speak. Look at verse 3. Everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Now let me unpack these three reactions. First, we need to continually redefine our ambition. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him Capital H. It can be translated subjectively, the hope that we have in us or in him, little h, the believer. It can be translated objectively in the hope we have placed upon him, capital H. We're not sure where John was going, but both work. The word, by the way, translated hope is used by John typically in the hope of The coming of Christ, he uses that eschatologically. He uses that with the hope of these prophetic events taking place. Eternal life in his presence. Who put that idea in his mind? Where did mankind have the idea placed in his mind that there's something out there? There's something more. There's something eternal. I've learned in my study that Australian aborigines pictured an eternal future as a distant island beyond the western horizon. Early Finns thought it was also a distant island, but in the faraway east. Mexicans, Peruvians, Polynesians believed that they would either live forever on the sun or on the moon after death. Native Americans believed that their spirits would live forever hunting the spirits of buffalo. The Gilgamesh epic from ancient Babylon believed in a resting place at a tree, a tree of life. The pyramids of Egypt are testimonies, simply testimonials to the belief that the deceased would resurrect. They would have maps placed carefully by their sides of powerful pharaohs and politically connected families in order to guide them to their future eternal world. Romans even believed that they would one day lounge in Elysian fields with horses grazing nearby. Although these eternal places and eternal ambitions change from culture to culture, there is this unifying theme in a deeply religious world, literally around the globe, emanating from the heart of mankind, that this world is not all there is. And they're right. If their hope is fixed to the legends and testimonies of men long dead, our hope is fixed on something else. Our map to a future existence is not based upon the teachings of someone occupying a grave who supposedly made it to the place and his disciples hoped he made it to the place he believed in. We're not sure. We're going to believe he did. Now, our map is a person who rose from the grave and validated in that resurrection his claim to be the way, the truth, and the what? The life. John 14, 6. Our hope is not fancied legend. 
It is confirmed in historically validated events. Witnesses, more than 500 seeing the resurrected Christ and then many seeing him ascend to heaven. 1 Corinthians 15. Our hope then is fixed. It's anchored upon our resurrected and ascended and soon returning sovereign. The truth of the matter is that we as believers can lose the defining objectivity of our longings, though, can't we? I've never, I've never met a Christian who denied interest in heaven or the coming of Christ. But the truth is, can't we as believers start longing for earth, earthy things, rather than longing and looking for eternal things? Can we not easily, as one author said, start acting like settlers rather than pilgrims? Our ambitions then becoming no different or forward thinking than the ambition of earthbound pagans who simply live for the next paycheck or the next promotion or the next place or the next partner or the next party or whatever. John is using, by the way, this present tense participle here for having this hope. In other words, this hope is pictured as daily treasured. He's thinking of someone who, who actively treasures this hope. In other words, it matters to him. He's encouraging us based on the convictions of who you are and what you're going to become. Daily treasure this. Does it matter to you? A man tells me it matters to him. If I could see his checkbook, I'd know if Jesus really mattered. If I could look at his schedule, I'd find places that indicated that Jesus really mattered to him. That those who belonged to Jesus mattered to him. That those who didn't belong to Jesus Christ truly mattered to him. Talk to him about his school or his career. And he would tell you that his school or his job, that campus, that career is simply the place where God has appointed him for this particular point in time so that he can make sure people somehow see through him and hear from him that Jesus Christ matters. I was talking to a businessman just a couple of days ago who told me that he had this business trip and he came back and he was so excited because he had the names of four businessmen that he had met that he was now going to be in contact with for the sake of the gospel. It matters. That's having your hope truly fixed on him. He really is your treasure. The Chicago Tribune ran an article on an author who once worked in a steel mill. This former steel worker wrote a book about his experiences. And he described that scene where at times the, 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 the air would be filled with those silvery dust flakes that floated to the floor in an area of the mill where, where steel strips rolled over pads in a, t- in a tall cooling tower. And for years, workers would come, especially at night, to see them dancing and shimmering in the light. And visitors would also come uh, flocking to the side, which was especially picturesque at, at night. But then, years later, they discovered the danger of asbestos. 
Everybody had breathed those silvery, dancing, asbestos flakes. Many of the employees, especially like this author, are now dying. And he makes this telling comment in his book. He says, and to think we used to fight over that job. That was the job to have. That was the coveted placement in the mill. Man, if I could just be there. What an illustration of deadly enchantment. And I wonder what kind of silver flakes we're chasing today. They're all the rage, but they will soon be found to be dangerous distractions and even deadly. The Apostle John is saying, look, if we are indeed royalty and the coming of Christ is ahead and with him our immortality, continue to redefine your longings, your ambition, your true treasure. Secondly, we need to continually be readdressing our purification. Look again at verse 3. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him does what? Purifies himself. Obviously, this isn't a reference to the purification of regeneration or some ability to you know, absolve yourself of your sins. God never gave mankind that ability. There's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. John has already made it clear also in the first chapter of this letter in verse 7, the blood of Christ is the only thing capable of daily cleansing us from every sin. So what's John talking about? John is simply referring to our responsibility to live for Christ in purity. In fact, the word to purify is a word that refers to ceremonial cleanliness. It's a word used in the Septuagint, the Old Testament Greek translation of the Hebrew text, for the priests who would wash their hands, who would wash the utensils used in, the, in temple service. So the word originally referred to something that was ritually clean. Eventually, in the New Testament era, it came to be understood as this ethical cleansing, this, this daily, wholehearted, internal dedication to purity. Again, it's present tense, which means we daily, regularly purify ourselves. That is, we seek purity. Simply the discipline of godly living. Do you ever master that one? You get up every morning determined to start afresh with the deposit of grace given to you by our Lord. This is Paul, by the way, connecting the same dots for Titus that John is connecting For us here, this is how you live because of what you're going to become, for where you'll be. He writes to Titus, deny ungodliness, say no to ungodliness and worldly desires and live sensibly, righteously, godly in the present age, looking for that blessed hope. In other words, while you're doing that, saying no to that, you're looking for that blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Titus 2, 12 and 13. So purifying ourselves involves the daily battle to cleanse what we do with our minds, our thoughts, our speech, our eyes, Our hands. What do we do with our disappointments? Our fears? Our injuries? Do we purify them? Our enemies? Our plans? And on and on. Are we going to daily wash, cleanse everything about us 
in purity? Or will we instead this day or the next day inch closer and closer and closer to impurities? That's the idea. How close to the line will we come? I came across a rather tragic illustration of this very concept set aside of my files knew that now would be a good time to use this. There's a book that actually chronicles the nearly 700 people who have died in some accident or something related to the Grand Canyon over the past 140 years. In more recent years, most of the deaths are the result of an airplane or helicopter crash. Others have drowned while rafting the river. Still others have taken their own lives there. But according to this author, a number of people have gone over the edge and have fallen to their death through their own carelessness. In fact, just a year ago, he writes of an 18-year-old young lady who was hiking on the North Rim Trail and decided to venture off the beaten path, ignore the warning signs, to have her picture taken at a spot known as Inspiration Point. But as she sat down on the ledge, a ledge that had carried hundreds of people before her, the rock suddenly gave way and she plummeted to her death. Like the 38-year-old father in 1992 who was jokingly trying to frighten his teenage daughter by leaping up onto a guardrail wall. He flailed his arms as he was pretending to lose his balance. He knew there was a ledge on the other side and he pretended to fall behind the wall to that ledge, even though there were numerous warning signs. He jumped down on the other side of the wall, lost his footing and fell 400 feet to his death. Why in the world would a Christian royalty, headed for the kingdom, come up to the Grand Canyon called sin and say, I wonder how many warning signs I can ignore today. I wonder how close I can get to the edge without falling in. Why would we ever think that way? When our immortality and unimaginable reign with Christ is just around the corner. You see, these convictions should be producing reactions. Continually redefining our ambition. Continually readdressing our purification. One more. Continually readjusting our reflection. Would you notice in that verse again the object of your imitation? And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as like he, Christ, is, keyword, pure. Jesus doesn't continually purify himself. He is pure. He becomes in the pattern for our self-purification. Morally blameless, uncontaminated, sinless. He is the object of our imitation because we want to reflect him. So let's be careful. It's tempting to look around and... Choose someone from the royal family and say, I'm going to be just like that person. It's okay if they're following Christ, as Paul the Apostle said. Follow me, he said, as I follow whom? Christ. We have to continually readjust our reflection based upon the object of our imitation. Make sure we're reflecting Jesus Christ as we imitate him. Why? Because we are convinced with the Apostle John 
of who we are. Children of God, because Christ is going to appear, and like him we will become robed in holy perfection and glorious immortality. We then want to react in this way. Let me close by telling you of a man who got it right. Uh, I'm enjoying a number of different commentators, some with the Lord. One of them, in his commentary on this text, you probably hear him on the radio by the name of Chuck Swindoll, he talked about an older man that he worked with for a few years when Swindoll was a younger man. No seminary degree hanging on this elderly man's wall, barely a high school education, an hourly worker in the machine shop where Swindoll worked. His name was George, and he he basically had one job, and that was to sweep out the shavings that would gather, that would collect underneath the huge lathes, the machinery, as well as sweep the debris from the floor. It was a dirty, it was a dusty job. Swindoll remembers this man was a committed believer. This elderly gentleman loved to talk about Scripture, especially Scripture related to the coming of Christ. Prop his arms up on the broom and talk away. He said that you could often hear this man singing hymns about the coming of Christ. Early on, Swindoll got a lesson from this man. It was Friday afternoon, almost quitting time, and he said, and I'll read. He said, I looked at George and said, George, are you ready for tonight? You ready to go? And he said, yep. But his clothes were filthy. He was obviously not ready. I said, look at you, man, you're not ready. You got to go clean up. No, he said, let me show you something. And he unzipped his coveralls a few inches, and underneath were the neatest, cleanest clothes you can imagine. He had them on already. All he did when the whistle blew was unzip, step out of his coverall, walk up, punch his clock, and he was out of there. But he turned to me just before I left and said something I never forgot. You see, he smiled, I stayed ready to keep from getting ready. I stayed ready to keep from getting ready. That's pretty good theology. That summarizes what the Apostle John has told us fairly well. Because of who we are, because of who we're going to become, this is what we ought to be doing in the meantime. We're living ready. In fact, this elderly man said to Swindoll just before he left, he said, and this is just like I am ready right now. For Jesus to come. Staying ready. Everybody who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Would you pray with me? Thank you, Father, for these wonderful truths upon which we base our convictions. We have difficulty imagining the scope of such truth. We are royalty? We don't feel like it. And often we don't act like it. And with that, your servant John has encouraged us as we have studied today and worshiped you again to to keep pressing on in this discipline of godliness. Unpacking, evaluating, thinking through our reactions, 
so that we do redefine our ambitions and we do readdress daily our purification and we do check that which we are modeling our lives after and upon. Father, we want to thank you ahead of time for that which we can barely comprehend. And you have prepared it for your beloved. And so we, as a a congregation of those called out by your spirit, the church, not only thank you, but rededicate ourselves to these kinds of reactions. That you would clarify even now our vision and for us our inheritance. Your presence through your spirit with us now, your presence face to face one day. We thank you in Jesus' name.